Today we're going to consider another one of Jesus's parables, those simple everyday stories that reveal the depth and the power of his spiritual kingdom, the new covenant kingdom that Jesus had begun to inaugurate as he had his ministry on earth, as he headed towards the cross of Calvary, his death and resurrection, inaugurating the new kingdom of grace and truth that God had promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Now, if you're not familiar with the second coming, maybe you're not a Christian, it's just something, maybe you've been uncomfortable and haven't studied, don't panic because we're going to deal with some of that as we go through today's passage. Because this entire scripture we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 18 comes in light of the second coming, the second coming of Christ that he promises at the end of Luke chapter 17. The great preacher J.C. Ryle says there's no other way to read today's parable, yet in light of understanding it all relates to the second coming of Jesus. So in light of all that's been happening in our world today and in light of all the uncertainty with the unrest in our world and with the COVID-19 crisis, this is perhaps a very timely parable for us to consider this day. As we as God's people wonder about what will come next in our world, when the Lord will return, and what we are to make of all that is happening in our world today. How should I live? How should I prepare? How should I feel? How should I walk? How should I talk? How should I address this issue in my life or in my world? We're all asking these questions in this time. We're all looking for answers. And such questions, these deep longings of our hearts, they don't form in a vacuum. They come out of real life experiences and, and fears and even, if we're honest, frustrations in our world. And that's been true for people throughout history in God's church. Those who are faithful followers of Christ experiencing real world events just as we are today. They wonder and they ponder like we are, what do I do now? And these are good questions. And as we will see in today's scripture, the answer to these questions require us to have resilience from within ourselves and also to seek guidance and power outside of ourselves so that we are able to be God's people in the circumstances we find ourselves encountering today. So where do we get this strength? Where do we get this guidance? How do we know if we're doing what God is calling us to do in the times we live? Well, let's open up today to Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, remembering again that Jesus has taught all of this on the coattails of Luke 17. There's no scene change, no change in the people present. Luke 17, at the end of that uh, chapter, is very much Jesus teaching in detail about what his disciples and what his followers, who are the, the uh, hearers of this, what are they to expect of the second coming? And yet then he tells this everyday story, this parable, right on the heels of that teaching. So let's hear what it's all about. Let's put it all together and let's learn from God's word today. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. What should our heart attitude be when we face such uncertainty in the future, in the present, for our world and for our lives. Let's read. Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. 
there was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling. But later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is God's holy word. Now, the core of this parable, as we're going to see, is found in verses 2 through 5. And as we look into that, I want you to know to follow along in your scripture, if you're doing that, that verses 2 through 5 are the core that we're going to get most of this parable. And then there's reaction that faces us where God wants us to face, that God is going to use this parable to point us in our hearts in the right direction. So let's, uh, let's consider the implications of this uh, for those hearing Jesus' parable back then and for us in our world today. In verse 2 we read, There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. Jesus makes up a very simple scenario today, and it, of course, connected very well with the people of Israel, with his disciples and followers who were listening that day to this parable. And let's be honest, it aligns with our own experiences and maybe some of our own frustrations in our world today. But you see, in Israel, a land that had been oppressed and occupied over hundreds of years, there were lots of side deals, lots of political corruption, lots of loss, uh, deceit, destruction, lots of oppression. They had many widows in Israel, and sadly, they had many corrupt people like the tax collectors we've talked about and, and judges, and many of them would work in concert with the occupying force, which in Jesus' day was the Roman Empire, to keep their own power or to gain greater power, and they did so at the expense of people. And in many historical accounts from those inside Israel or in other nations that the Romans occupied, uh, we saw that this unjust judge would be all too common of a character. He would make sense. He was a universally understood figure. And such a judge, such a person that sadly many of these people would encounter, they would think of that person as not only a real thing, but a detestable and a loathsome thing, something they all encountered and frankly despised. He was so wrong in both the sight of God and of all the people. A judge like this one Jesus described had no compassion. He didn't care about people. He didn't worship nor care about God. And that presented a different problem as we'll see for, for God's people and in light of all we've been talking about in our Wednesday Word devotionals and in our, our Sunday messages, in, in our, our messages on the parables that we've looked at, think about the reality. This guy did the opposite of everything that Jesus taught and that God's Word, that God's Old Testament had commanded. He didn't love his neighbor. 
with humility and with grace, as we talked about last week. Uh, he didn't fear God. He did not respect humanity, as this passage says. He was literally that bad. Now, what amplified or extenuated this wickedness to Jesus's audience was the position that he held as a judge. Maybe you've run into this. Someone gets a job somewhere and it's really the last job they should have. I remember I ended up as Robert's and Katie's soccer coach at one point because they had a lady who had become the coach because she didn't want that parent, some other parent on the team that everyone felt would ruin it for the kids to be coached. And she took over and found out she was completely over her head. So the soccer league came to me and said, would you please coach? And of course I, I did coach because I was trying to make sure that all the kids didn't have a negative experience from that parent. Uh, maybe you understand or have a, a similar story of somehow you got involved with something in your kids' uh, sports or drama or some organization at school. And it always seems in our world that people who have the wrong character or the wrong motivations often end up in positions of power and they misuse that power as we might expect. And that to the greatest degree is what we see Jesus describing in this story. Someone who wielded that power, an unrighteous judge, and that's just who he was, dishonest, corrupt, and lacking any justice in what he did. Such a person in Jesus's world would unfortunately be commonplace. The people would understand this, the worst possible person in the worst possible position. And imagine yourself having to come into court and deal with such a person. In Israel, as they heard this, they, they understood that because unfortunately, those were many of the judges they knew in that oppressive world. Now, maybe for you and I, we think of this in our world and in such judges. I mean, these would be the everyday judges in the small village courts. That's who we're talking about here. Maybe like you remember the old serialized TV shows like The Judge or The People's Court or Judge Judy or something like that. You're thinking of someone like that. And that's what Jesus' hearers would be thinking of, a common civil Court And this unscrupulous judge who was, I guess, the local magistrate, he was someone who wielded that power with absolutely no care for the people around him, but particularly not for God. And that was a problem because in that culture, judges were expected to be people of great faith and those who would adhere to God's word and as they ruled based on the Old Testament law, they were to be people that did so with faith and with piety. Consider here the words from 2 Chronicles 19, 4 through 7. Good King Jehoshaphat, he's appointing and instructing judges as to what they should do, how they should act and live as judges. 2 Chronicles 19, 4 through 7. Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem and once again he went out among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their ancestors. He appointed judges in all the fortified cities in the land in Judah, city by city. Then he said to the judges, consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for a man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the matter of judgment. And now may the terror of the Lord be on you. 
watch what you do. For there is no injustice or partiality or, or taking bribes with the Lord our God. Think about that. That's the charge that judges in Israel in Jesus' day would have understood to be their job. Any judge would know that, especially the last verse from 2 Chronicles 19, verse 7. And now may the terror of the Lord be on you. Watch what you do, for there is no injustice or partiality or taking bribes with the Lord our God. You weren't serving some man or some other person. You were serving God. That's what it meant to be a judge in Israel, to interpret according to the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament. And if you were to read this passage and study it, Dr. John MacArthur, he reminds us that in Israel's history, corrupt judges were unfortunately nothing new. Prophets spoke out against them, particularly the prophet Amos talks about injustice that occurred because the judges were corrupt. These judges knew how to get ahead at the expense of the people. They didn't care who they hurt or what God had commanded, and that had extended into Jesus' time, and the uncertainty and the disruption of the Roman rule had caused many of these positions to be filled by unscrupulous, unfaithful people who lined their own pockets. And so many in Jesus' day would have regarded judges, they would have thought of them or used the term robbers to describe them. Those who got ahead at the expense of the people kind of reminds you of the Pharisees and the ruling people, the Sanhedrin that Jesus has been cracking down on in our other parables, doesn't it? So in places where this opportunity and power, this temptation is available to misuse that opportunity and power, corruption occurs. And that's something that we understand in our world, in societies with more oppression, with more totalitarian or despotic, with more dictatorial kind of things happening, it seems like that corruption is higher. The, the more oppression, the more abuse that's available, the more it seems to occur. We're really blessed to live in America where though there is certainly difficulty and things that need to be dealt with, we can look at other places in the world and find true injustice and really weigh that against what we understand in our world today. But in Jesus's world, this idea of a judge who is more of a thief than a guardian, that's something they understood. And in verse two, where it uses the word shame, that word in the original language is entropomai, is the word there. And it's a verb in Greek that means to put someone to shame. That's what it means. And that idea in Jesus's day would be a massive insult. Remember, Jesus's culture is built firmly on this idea of honor. We've explored this in some of our other parables already, such as the, the, the parable about the dishonest manager. We understand this idea of honor, or as we've looked at different kinds of workers in parables and how to honor those who hired you was to work a full day, as we have been talking about as well. So no one would want to be put to shame. Everyone would want to conduct themselves with honor and would treat others with honor, and they would expect to also be treated with honor. That's something we should remember in our world today. Honor is almost a, a lost art in our world this day, this idea of honor. But this judge, he had no honor. He had no character. He had no faith. There was nothing for you to appeal to 
as you stood before him in your local court. And in verse 3, that's just what we see this widow, she has to do. She stands before this judge. And widows were, of course, women without much protection in that culture. It was a male-dominated culture. Women could not hold much property of any kind, certainly not in the Jewish culture traditionally. And they were easy targets and often taken advantage of. And this particular woman inherent in this passage written into it, the people would have read this as she's someone who's been defrauded. So she's going in and she's saying, you know, I need you to make this right. I need justice against the one who has defrauded me. And so this woman, this widow comes and persistently demands the shameless judge help her. And it's obvious to Jesus's audience, though not maybe as obvious to us, she has no one else to help her. She has no a son, no brother, no brother-in-law or nephew, no man to stand there. Often in these situations, a woman would bring a male relative because the men ran the courts and they would plead on the behalf of the woman for what was right according to the Old Testament standards. Yet in this world, it may feel a little bit like a lifetime movie to us because this woman just can't get anyone to listen to her, can't get anyone to help her, and she has been unjustly harmed. And despite the clear teachings of the Old Testament that the judges in the culture were supposed to adhere to, she has been taken advantage of. Think about passages like Isaiah 1.17. This one makes sense to you because it's echoed in the book of James. You may have heard it there. Isaiah 117, learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Think about that. The judge would know this passage, this Old Testament passage, and it's part of that culture today. That's why we see it repeated later in the book of James. But the judge, he doesn't care at all. He doesn't care one bit. And even though she's morally light, right and biblically she's right, no one has shown her mercy or pleaded her cause. In our world this day, this should bear some weight with things happening in our world, not because of slogans or hashtags or labels or anything else we're seeing in popular media. That's not the kind of thing we talk about here at our church. We talk about this because God's word commands that we do these things, that we do what is just and right and good. So we should consider what's right and what's merciful in God's sight, what he demands, and we should practice it. But this judge in our parable today, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't do what's right. But yet the woman, the widow, sets an example for all of us. She perfectly obeys the law. She respects the truth, the biblical reality that the system of judges is built upon, even though some of the judges may be corrupt. She comes and pleads her case day after day. The words here in the original language, give me justice, the idea would actually be vindicate me. Vindicate me. She's coming in day after day making that demand, and she does this before the judge, repeating it every day, demanding what is good and right between humanity and God. Now look here at verses 4 and 5 from Luke 18. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, 
Even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. In all these parables, we see Jesus giving us the ultimate version of things. We have the, the parable of the two sons where the younger, the prodigal son, is the ultimate sinner and the older uh, brother, the older son, is really the ultimate uh, faker, the ultimate hypocrite, as we even talked about in our parable last week. We have now this judge who is the ultimate terrible judge, the least caring the least honest person. Yet even this dishonest judge has limits. As we saw with the rich man and Lazarus, here we see the judge is thinking and feeling. He's kind of thinking out loud in this sort of soliloquy. And we see this in verses four and five. I don't care about God. I don't, I don't care about man. I'm just beyond irritated. And since I know she's gonna come and just wear me down, fine. I'll give her Justice. That's what the judge says to himself. And he describes her continued attempts, her demands for justice, as painful. And yet she does it, and she does it right. And this judge, we know how awful he is, and we see that contrasted with how strong and how upright and how good this widow is. And here at the end, the judge, with all the power, with all the corrupt authority, he's beaten into submission. And that's what the wording here means. It's the idea of being punched to the point that you just don't want to get hit anymore. And the judge gives it all up. This woman who practiced culturally and politically, she had nothing on her side. But yet her persistence and her righteousness, that was on her side. And she stood by those truths until justice was granted. Now, before we read too much, of the current events in our world in this story, let's take a moment to check ourselves and let's not read our own bias into this passage. Let's not politicize this in our own hearts and minds. This woman faced injustice, yes, but she continually pleaded her case rightly and with diligence and integrity within the bounds of law as she understood God's word rightly. And that's something we all need to take into account in light of the current paradigms unfolding in our world today. We are not called to be lawless people as Christians. We are called to righteously stand against injustice, but not to do it in a way that creates greater or different injustice. Jesus communicates in this parable that we are to be people that seek what's good and right and true, particularly in light of the second coming, as we talked about earlier. What does that mean for us? Well, in the very first verse, verse 1 of Luke 18, Jesus knows all that he's revealed about the second coming. It's troubling for his disciples and his followers as they hear it. And he does not want them, as, as verse 1 says, he does not want them to lose heart. And with all that was read in Luke 17, all that was said about the second coming, I invite you to look at that this week if you want to dig into this a little deeper. Let's Luke 17, 20 through 37. 
read about what Jesus says about the second coming. Often Christians will say, uh, people will come to me as a pastor and said, ah, you know, I don't really get in the book of Revelation. It's too hard to understand. Who knows what any of it's going to be? Well, one thing we know is that Jesus knew exactly what it was going to be, and he does describe it in some pretty distinct detail here in this passage. And there's going to be judgment. There's going to be loss of life. It's, it's going to be difficult. And in the, in the context of Jesus teaching on this, he tells this parable about destruction and uncertainty and what is yet to come when he comes again, pain, anguish, and strife. And as Jesus teaches this, he wants them to understand a lot of hardship and a lot of difficulty in a world broken by sin will come between the first advent of Jesus' arrival in the second advent when Jesus comes again. There's going to be trouble, Jesus says. He tells us that. He reminds us there's going to be sin is going to cause injustice. Uh, he's going to cause, it's going to cause injustice and unrelenting pain at times. Nothing will seem fair or right or good to us at certain points in our lives. And Jesus is very real about that. Sin is unrelenting in its attempt to destroy our world and to destroy us as individuals, to destroy the fabric of our relationships and our connections to one another. I think that's what we're seeing in our world today. It's everywhere around us. And we have to make sure that as we plead our case for what is good and right, our own cures and our own way to what we see as injustice is not a greater injustice or a similar injustice to what we are trying to overcome. So how do we do that? How do we do that in our world this day? Well, we are called here to consistently, unrelentingly pray to God and to never lose heart. If we look other places in God's word, Matthew 24, 13 reminds us God will sustain us and that if we endure to the end, we will be saved. Similarly, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, a familiar passage, reminds us that the way we are to do that and to not lose heart is to pray without ceasing. Just as that persistent widow, she pleaded her case before even an unrighteous judge without ceasing. We are to pray and to seek God without ceasing. Every week we're trying to give a litmus. If you want to know, are you following? Are you attempting not to lose heart? Even as difficult as things are in the world around us, are you praying to God persistently? That is a way you can, a spiritual indicator you can find in your own life. Am I seeking to be one who's faithful to? Do I want to pray? Do I want to trust in God? Do I want to work fervently to seek the Lord? Am I praying to him? Is my first inclination to pray to God for guidance or do I want to lash out and do something for my own satisfaction like that unrighteous judge? Am I like the widow or am I like the judge? How will God answer these prayers? What will God do with them? Well, look at verses 6 through 8 in our passage today. Let's read that. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Friends, this passage is written for us in times like this, when we are so tempted to lose heart or just to take all the matters into our 
our own hands and place all of our trust in a movement or in the, in the politics or into our, our physical possessions or whatever it might be. But before we give in to those things, I ask you today, friends, are we as Christians passionate and continually praying with fervency to look towards that future that Jesus has promised us? It's a future where evil loses and good prevails, where rights are wronged, and even those without any regard for truth will relent at the prayers and the powers of the persistent saints of God. Justice will be granted. And this prayer looks forward to that day with hope and expectation where mercy and redemption and truth will win. It looks forward to a king and a kingdom very much unlike the unrighteous judge the widow faced, or unlike the circumstances we may face are in our world today, there are injustices, but yet God will relent and grant mercy even in our world today when we seek him with our whole hearts through passionate and continual prayer. Like the widow in the story, the church today must plead with God, who is unlike that judge in today's parable. He's a just and a good and a loving judge in a world broken by sin and under the influence of Satan and evil, there is injustice and we should stand up to it. And it doesn't mean we don't act, but like the widow, we must act righteously and we must put our faith in the true judge, in the God of heaven, who is nothing like the judge in our story today. And even though our world may be corrupt, just as the world was in Jesus's day, the key for us as we pray is in verse 7. We are to pray. How should we pray? Verse 7, we must cry to him day and night. Friends, the key is persistence. Jesus here interprets and tells us the meaning of the parable and what we must do. Verse 7 is the key to that. Will God not vindicate? Will he not make right? Do what's good according to what he does because God is good. He declares and does what is good, the true judge, the just judge, he will make all things right. He will make some of them right now, but he will make all things right when he comes again in that second advent. So you and I have a choice today. We can live and act and work and pray for all that Jesus declares to be good and right. That means we have to know what's good and right. We have to study God's word and not get caught up in all the noise around us as we've been talking about, but seek God first. What do you pray for? What do you seek? Where does your energy go in your life? All these parables remind us to stop and inventory our lives. Where do those energies go? Are you fighting on the internet with people? Are you reading things that are just designed to create angst and aggression? Whatever side you feel God's on an issue, are you seeking God's word to know what God says? Are you praying and waiting God, on God's spirit to transform your heart and renew it so that you can test and approve what God says is his good, pleasing, and right, perfect will? Are you doing that? Or are you just filled like everyone else in the world around you with outrage? Friends, there are things that are truly outrageous and wrong in this world, and I'm not trying to diminish any of those. But we must, as God's people, seek him first. What does Jesus ask of us? What does he say in verse 8 of this passage? When the Son of Man comes, when he returns in that second coming, will he find faith on the earth? 
how we pray, how we live, and how we conduct ourselves as God's saints, as God's church. Those, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we are called. We cannot live outside the reality of this second coming. Where does your heart and soul energy go? Are you pleading with God and praying to him? Are you crying out to him day and night and waiting on him? If the object of our lives, if our energy is put forth seeking God, he will use us to do what's right and to combat injustice in our world. And he will do it just as he did with that widow in a way that is good and right. Not that creates more sin, but that uses and reforms what is wrong to make it what is good and what is right. And this week, consider in your own life, what are you persistently seeking? What do you and I seek in our lives? Where do we expend our energies? What do we pray for? Does it align with God's holy word? Does it put us in light of God's second coming, that Christ will return? We must all answer and give account. Will he find us faithful when he returns? Friends, that's what we're here to do, to persistently seek him, to love and serve others, to be those who are right in a world that is all, all wrong. That's what we are called to do. We are to live our lives as faithful followers, to seek what is good and right in humility, as we talked about last week, but with persistence as we've learned today. That's what we are to do as those who live in light of the second coming. 2 Peter 3.9 reminds us about that second coming. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord does not delay his promises as some understand delay, but is patiently with you not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Friends, God is not holding back because he wants us to suffer. He's not allowing injustice, but he wants us to reach out to love and to seek him, to pray fervently for his power to fill us and to serve and to care for others, to persistently plead with love, with dignity, and with honor what is good and what is right according to his holy word. That's how we persistently become the church who await God's second coming. That's what we are to do, friends. That's what we must do this day so that others would see Christ in us and who we are and how we conduct ourselves and how we fervently seek him day and night and cry out to him, praying that his justice and his mercy would fall down upon our land. And I invite you to join me this week in doing that. Let's pray for that now. God, that you would be with us, that you would use us in this time, that we would know that how, how should we live, Lord? We should live, act, walk, talk, and pray as those who seek justice and mercy and compassion, that we do what's right, that we live and walk rightly, even when we've been wrong, just as this persistent widow did in the face of this unjust judge. God, I pray that the fabric of our hearts, that the words in our prayers that we form before you, that we would constantly be seeking to know what you desire, to live and to serve and to love and to belong to you. In these days, God, would we see one, each other the way you see us as broken people in need of your grace, that we would be those who lay down our lives and love and serve to bring justice and mercy, not at the expense of anyone else, but for the good of all people in accordance to your holy word. Make us people of grace and mercy who proclaim the gospel till you come again, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.